0: I was, um, just before my senior year in high school, my, uh, my family moved to a small town in Kansas, kind of the middle of nowhere, Kansas, and uh, so it was right before my senior year. Um, there was a lady in this church that um, she wanted to welcome us to the town and to the church, uh, and so she invited my family over, and I did not know anything about her. I just knew her name was Granny Keck, that's what everybody called her, Granny Keck, and that she was old. So it turns out, she was real old. (laughs) She was in her mid to late 90s, um, and she wanted to welcome us. So she had us over for this giant meal that she prepared. I think one of her daughters helped her put it together. And it was a super cool experience. Um, She was like, old, like born in the 1800s old. She was born in the late 1890s. And as a 17-year-old kid, I was just kind of like, whoa. Like, what did you live through? And we started talking and listening to stories, like, she was born before automobiles existed. She was born before people had electricity in their home. Like, there were rumors of electricity, (laughs) but, like, (laughs) loads of people in many places in the world had never seen it. It was just a rumor of something weird. So that's when she was born, and I realized, like, she was born before the World Wars. She was born closer to the Civil War than she was to World War II, and yeah, so it's just like in awe of this woman. And we had a great experience hanging out with her, listening to her stories. The food was like like from scratch, old school, country food. It was good, good stuff. So we had a great time with Granny Keck, hanging out at her place. A couple of months after that, she passed away. Um, and uh, we had the, the funeral service, the memorial service was all held at our church. And I remember sitting there kind of being, I th- it's the first actual funeral, I think, that I can remember as a kid. uh, And I remember sitting there and just kind of being in awe of the experience. She had picked out all of her own songs for her service. I kind of laid out how it would go. And it was like all these happy songs. And there was a little bit of sadness in the room, but people were celebrating and telling stories. And it was this cool experience. And I remember thinking, like, when I'm, if I make it to 90, whatever, whenever I go, i you know, I hope my funeral's like that, like this place, that this mixture of sadness and also joy, of loss, but also celebration. So about 10 years after that, um, somewhere in the 90s, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, um, Wendy's uncle Richard passed away. He was in his 60s, um, died from cancer, died too early, left a big family behind. And uh, so we're at the, um, the viewing and the funeral stuff. But I remember distinctly being at the viewing, and we're in this big room, and you know, the casket's kind of laid out. And Wendy and her cousins are kind of hanging out around the sides of the room, telling stories about Uncle Richard, laughing. It was like this super cool experience. And I, I, like I got to know him gradually when we started dating and got married, but I didn't know him really well. But this room was full of people that were sad, but they also were really like rejoicing. It was this weird experience of celebrating a really amazing life. And again, this mixture of deep sadness, but also joy of loss and some kind of celebration. So a number of years um, after that, somewhere around there in 1999 actually, my first daughter Emma was born. She, uh, it was a really rough delivery. It was a long, very long and painful delivery for Wendy. Um, Lily was born a couple years after that. Clara, about three years after that, and I remember like at each of their births being scared out of my mind, (laughs) like watching what was going on in this room as these kids were like laboring into the world, and the the like the danger to the mom's body and the danger to the child's body and. There's so much fear and scariness in the room, and what's going to happen, and you don't really know. But the moment the baby's born, there's also this deep joy and delight. There's screaming in the room and pain and all of this stuff. But then also this be- like crying starts to happen, and you're like, <gasps> she's crying, woohoo! <laughs> you know this just this crazy mixture of emotions happening in that experience, which each of our um, three girls. So then you um, so pain and excitement, fear and joy. And then you take them home, and the real fear kicks in. Where You're like, we got to keep this baby alive. <laughs> like, we're responsible for raising them up to be like a decent human. Like, I don't know how to do that. So this same sort of fear and excitement, the sort of concern and worry and anxiety and pain that starts to get to introduced as kids grow up, but also delight and wonder, these emotions all mixed in together. So Emma um, is now 18 years old, she just went off to college this year, which is pride and sadness, good feelings and not so good feelings, Lily's going to leave for college in a couple of years, proud and sad all mixed together. So um, Emma and Lily, Clara hasn't joined in quite yet, she's convinced she's never going to, but um, Emma and Lily joined me in fantasy football this year, so they both have a fantasy football team. And, uh, you know, I'm proud. That's awesome. You know, my daughter's representing, you know. Um, So this weekend, Lily and I, our teams, play each other in fantasy football. And uh, if she beats me, my season's over. I'm out of the playoffs. So um, I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm kind of torn. Like, I want her to win, and I'll be happy for her, but then I lose, and I'm done. But if I win, then I'm going to be all like, yeah, I get into the playoffs, but I just, like, beat my daughter. Like, this is, ter- this is terrible. So this mixture of emotions that are constantly swirling um, around in us. So many emotions all mixed up together in this life. Sadness and joy, loss and celebration, pain and excitement, fear, suffering and rejoicing, longing and hope, grieving what is now and looking forward to, anticipating what will be in the future, so I have a friend um, back, in, uh, back in Cincinnati, she put it this way. Living in this reality, this life, this world, um, requires an expanding heart, which can hold both the pain and the hope. Not to switch from one to the other, but to allow these interwoven truths to coexist inside of us all at the same time. So today is the beginning of Advent, the Christian Advent season. Um, as a church, uh, Christmas time, we do things different each year. We kind of shake it up, give us different perspectives on Christmas and the Christmas story and the Christmas season and what God's up to in the world. Um, this year, we're going to spend the next four weeks following the ancient tradition of Advent uh, and the, um, the Advent season, the Advent calendar. So um, for some of, the, some of us, this might be new. I've actually never been a part of a church church that um, followed the Advent calendar. So this is a new experience for me. That's true. Maybe some of you don't even know what Advent is, and that's totally okay. We're going to talk about it today. Um, But for some of you, you grew up in churches that this was a regular rhythm of how your church functioned, followed the Christian calendar, and um, focused on Advent through the course of the year. So as our teaching team has, um, has studied and planned for Advent and what we're going to be doing together over the next four weeks... Um, There's one particular thing that I've noticed about this concept of Advent. The normal focus going into Christmas is on happy feelings, happy holidays, um, Merry Christmas, joy to the world, all that kind of stuff that we throw around. But Advent isn't exactly like that, actually. Um, In essence, by definition, Advent simply means the arrival of a notable person or a thing or an event And so it represents this idea of waiting, of something that's arriving. That's what Advent um, talks about. So Advent is looking forward to something that is still to come, something better. It's a word that was chosen by Christians hundreds of years ago to represent this concept and an important truth to us that we do not yet have everything and all that God has promised to give us as his children, that we don't yet have everything that he's promised, that we live and exist in a broken world, that Advent acknowledges the reality of today, the emotional realities like sadness and fear and longing and loss and despair and loneliness, and also the physical realities of pain and brokenness and abandonment and injustice in the world, that Advent embraces and acknowledges all of these things existing, that while at the same time we look forward to what God is doing and what he's promised through um, through his people and to his people over time. So sadness and joy, sorrow and celebration, longing and anticipation, difficult emotions and pleasant emotions all mixed up um, and coexisting inside of us. So um, just to be um, honest, if you guys have been around me much, if you've watched me up here or um, if you've observed me from a distance, or if you've watched me pray, you realize like, the emotions are right there with me all the time. My therapist is still trying to help me figure out why that exactly is, but they 're all right there. My emotions are in the room they 've been in the room since I was born forty two whatever years ago. So um, for years, I actually thought that I Needed to um, to conquer my emotions, particularly the negative emotions that I needed to deny them, to avoid them, to find some way to get them out of the room, like so that they weren't disrupting what was going on through the course of life. But the more that um, I spend time with God, the more I get to know Jesus, the more I study Scripture, I've come to realize that God doesn't treat emotions that way. We don't see God treating emotions as something that we need to pretend that don't exist to push them away to deny them to find reasons to only acknowledge the happy and the pleasant emotions that scripture doesn't shame emotions it doesn't neglect emotions it doesn't criticize emotions and that's a very freeing thing i think for us as humans especially when we're in the midst of heavy emotions so one of our values here at Everyday Church is emotionally healthy relationships. We talk about that a lot. We have a class where we learn about emotionally healthy relationships. As a reminder for the class, tonight is the last class in the series. So emotional, awe, sadness, and maybe some joy mixed in there. So, um, so tonight's the last class of emotionally healthy uh, relationships. So this is one of the values that we hold as a church And to have emotionally healthy relationships, you actually have to value and acknowledge emotions. You can't have emotionally healthy relationships by pretending that our emotions are supposed to be somewhere else, that we're supposed to control them and conquer them, that we actually receive emotions as a gift from God, as something that he uses to teach us, to speak to us through what's going on inside of us and what's going on um, in our hearts. So the ancient Christian calendar and the Advent season... These are human creations. This is just tradition. So we're following a tradition that's been around for a really long time. These are things that Christians came up with hundreds of years ago with the intent to give us a framework for connecting with God, a way of understanding and a way of interacting with God (coughs) and learning to become more and more like Jesus, to understand him and to become um, more and more like him. And emotions are an important part of that process that in fact, this emotional um, honesty and integration of emotions into our life is a part of the Advent season and the Advent process. And I'm very thankful for that. And I think we're gonna get to engage with some of that through, um, through this course of the course of this series. So this is not simply a season of happiness. So if you've ever rolled into, Chris into Christmas and thought I'm supposed to be happy and you were struggling to be happy, to feel good feelings, that's okay. It's not supposed to just be a season of, of happiness. This is not a season only of good feelings, An Advent, and our focus in these coming weeks, is one of emotional honesty, being honest with what's going on inside of us, and allowing God to um, to speak to us through both the difficult emotions and the pleasant ones that um, that we experience. So acknowledging this tension between difficult and pleasant emotions, and actually receiving from God the paradox that God is both happy and sad, and that we are happy and sad on a regular basis. These, m- these emotions are mixed in, and they seem like a paradox. They seem opposing, but in fact, they're not, and that we receive a gift from God when we allow these competing emotions to be present equally and um, coexisting inside of us. Okay, so a little history on uh, Advent before we get into our specific passage um, for today. So tr- uh, Advent's a tradition. It was actually started to be developed in the 4th century, So that's like 1,600, 1,700 years ago, really long time. Uh, Something that, just a tradition that Christians started to develop. And it continues to evolve even today. Different people do it different ways um, around the world. Uh, And so you'll find different passages of scripture and different practices that are weaved in, candle lighting, things like that. These are all things that are kind of a part of the Advent season. And we're going to find ways to weave some of those different things into um, our time together in the next four weeks. So Advent includes four, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. So today is the first Sunday. There's three more before Christmas on the 25th. So uh, And there's a particular focus that happens in each of those weeks as you move through the Advent calendar and the Advent season. Uh, and so the first two weeks, actually, this Sunday and next Sunday, the focus of Advent is looking forward to Jesus' return, his second coming. So the first two weeks, we're looking forward to what God has promised what Jesus has promised to return to us, uh, that during his life, Jesus promised that he would someday return and completely rescue us and restore things to the way God intended them to be. Uh, And just as God's chosen people thousands of years ago looked forward to to Jesus' original coming, his birth, we look forward to his return um, in the future. So the third and that's the first and second Sunday, the third and fourth Sunday of Advent or weekends of Advent, um, we're going to look back at the arrival of Jesus and his original birth 2,000 years ago and what that meant for the world and what that means for his uh, for God's people. So two Advents, two arrivals, Jesus' birth and then his return someday um, in the future. So each of the four weeks of Advent have a particular focus. uh, And so we're going to focus on these things in our messages and then different things that we're going to try to do through the week. Uh, So hope this week is hope. Um, then we'll have peace, joy, and love are the other um, topics. There's specific passages of scripture and stories from the Bible that are typically used in Advent, so we're going to grab some of those and use those, spend time with scripture reading and teaching and that sort of stuff as we go through. So uh, so that's the Advent plan over the next um, three or four weeks. So, Okay, uh, the main Advent passage that we're going to be looking at um, today is Psalm 130, and I made a... Um, Sheet for you guys. I want to have some people hand. We guess help. Me? So I made a sheet, a Lectio Divina <coughs> sacred reading sheet for you guys. Um, so each one of you take one of these, and um, we're going to use that today um, as we're working through um, the series. Okay, so lectio divina is um, sacred reading. It's an ancient way of um, of using scripture to connect with God. Using a passage of scripture to connect with God. Um, Sometimes when we're here, we do a sacred we do a lectio divina all together, uh, and that full process is laid out on that sheet. We did one together maybe last month or the month before. Um, Today we're not actually going to go through the whole process of lectio divina. But I wanted to give you this sheet, one, so that we can read the scripture together as we're going, um, but also to allow you to take this with you. And I would encourage you sometime this week to, uh, to go through the full process of Lectio Divina. You can do that by yourself. You can do it with some friends. Uh, it Just follow the process as it's laid out there. And uh, it's a way to interact and ask questions and connect with God and hear from him through the process. So that sheet is for you guys to take with you. You actually can use that top section, the Lectio Divina instructions, for any passage of scripture. So you can take that and apply it to any passage of scripture you're looking at uh, and um, go through the Lectio Divina process with anything with um, by yourself or, or with friends. So I want to make sure you guys have that. We're going to be reading down through um, Psalm 130 at the bottom here in just a little bit. So um, over the next few minutes, we're going to read down through Psalm 130, and I want to share with you some of what I think is going on in this psalm uh, and some of the things that we see as we explore and process through um, Psalm 130. So a little background information before we get started um, uh, on the psalm. The word psalm is probably not a word you have ever used in a normal conversation other than mentioning or referencing maybe a psalm from the bottom, from the Bible. Um, So psalm is just a really old word that means sacred song or poem just a song or a poem. That's an old word that's used and it typically represents a sacred um, one, sort of something that's used for religious purposes. Um, The book of Psalms in the Bible, near the middle of the Bible, is a collection of 150 of these sacred uh, sacred songs and poems. And that collection was finalized kind of in the, um, the format that we see it in, the 150 that we see. That was kind of finalized around 2,200, 2,300 years ago. So this was compiled a really long time ago. And in fact, many of the Psalms that are in the Book of Psalms um, date back even 3,000 years or more. So we're talking about really sacred and really old and really um, cool kind of history behind these things. And these psalms have long been used by God's people, by Jews originally, and now by Christians um, as well, for prayer, for worship, for a way for us to connect to God through the writings that we find um, in the book of Psalms. So that's a little information on, uh, on psalms. As we read through Psalm 130, it's, am- it's amazing to me to think that this thing could have been written like 3,000 years ago by a follower of God, a lot like you or me, Crying out to God, talking to him, and recording that for us, and we get to enjoy it and, um, and use it even in our own connecting with God um, today, now thousands of years, um, thousands of years later. So the beauty of the Psalms, I think, is that they are not only somebody else's words, but they can become our words, ways for us to express emotion or things in our heart that we have a difficult time maybe putting into language. Uh, and so we get to use these Psalms as a way to process through emotion and express, and you will see an incredible amount of motion as you study through and you read um, the different Psalms. We'll run into a little bit of it um, as we're working on Psalm 130 today. So I'm going to read Psalm 130 in just a moment, and you can follow along on your sheet. There's English on one side, Spanish on the other, if you didn't realize that. Um, but one thing before, um, before I get started in this, you'll see the word Lord. Uh, I think it shows up eight times in this Psalm, uh, Psalm 130. Uh, and that word actually is a translation of a couple of different words. A number of occasions, it just means Lord, which is like a title that's used, talking to God, he's Lord. But five in five cases of that word that's translated Lord in English, it was the original word Yahweh which was the name, if you remember from our last series, we talked about the name Yahweh. It's actually God's name. He names himself, says this is my name, and Yahweh is the name that he gives to his people to, to, so they know him personally and know his name. So what I'm reading down through here, I'm going to use the word Yahweh in the occasions where, where it appears. So if you want to underline it or whatever, you're welcome to do that. But I'm going to use the term Yahweh when it's used in the original text um, because I think it helps us connect with this writer who is expressing and interacting directly with God by name, this God that he knows as Yahweh that he's speaking, of, speaking to. Uh, okay, so let's take a look at um, Psalm 130. And you can follow along as I'm reading. <coughs> Out of the depths, I cry to you, Yahweh. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Yahweh, kept a record of sins... Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for Yahweh, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman waits for the morning, more than a watchman waits for the morning. Israel, put your hope in Yahweh, for with Yahweh is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their thin, sins. So the more um, time I spend reading through um, the Psalms and this particular Psalm, the more deep and real it becomes. The more I realize it relates to very much to sort of the average human experience. And I think we'll kind of um, see that as we're processing um, down through this stuff. So there's three sections that we kind of encounter as we're working through Psalm 130. Uh, in the first section, you'll notice that the writer is speaking to Yahweh. So the reference in the first um, f- uh, eight lines or so is directly to Yahweh. He was speaking to Yahweh. And he's crying out, it says, to Yahweh from the depths. So that word depth, is oft- it often appears in, um, in the Psalms and throughout the po- poetic literature that we encounter in Scripture. And it's o- oftentimes giving this idea of a pit like I'm crying out to you from the depths, from a pit, from, um, from a really deep valley, kind of these mountains around me and I'm trapped down in this valley. Sometimes it's even um, like the, the imagery that we get is like really deep water. So I'm like in the depths I'm down here. And the idea that the depths, this place where I find myself, is a place of darkness, a place of fear, a place of confusion, a place of pain. And so it's not a good place to be. You don't want to be in the depths. When you find yourself there, and so we see this writer calling out to God from the depths, this place of darkness and sadness, and also as you read through, and this is true in this passage and lots of times in the Psalms, it's as if crying out from the depths that God is really far away. This feeling we get from the writer that um, he's trying to get God's attention, like, pay attention to me, I'm all the way down here in the darkness in this terrible place, Look at me, pay attention, hear my cry. And these are the kind of words that we see here and, uh, and oftentimes in the Psalms when they're talking about this idea um, of the depths, of crying out from the depths. So how often do you, I'm curious, just to give you a moment to reflect, how often do we find ourselves in places of pain and sorrow and sadness, by, surrounded by what appears to be darkness and pain and suffering? How often do we find ourselves there? How often does God feel distant? distant? Do you allow yourself to even name that, that sometimes God feels distant from us, especially when we're in these seasons of difficulty and difficult emotions? Does God hear us? Is he listening? Does he even know what's going on in my life? Out of the depths, I cry to you, Yahweh. Lord, hear my voice let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So the writer is crying out here. He's approaching God. He's seeking, earnestly seeking connection and closeness to God. It's very evident. But then something very interesting happens. You move into the next few verses. Something that I think is very common for all of us, um, the writer remembers his own sin. So he's crying out to God, and then he like has this flash of his own sin, his own guilt, his own... Um, shame and I think this happens to us often in the midst of seeking and trying to connect with God we remember our sins our mistakes the things that have happened in our life the way that we've chosen our own way and not chosen God's way I'm crying out to God but why would God listen to me anyways I don't listen to him I don't do things the way he has asked me to do so often in my life I go in my own way and I'm crying out to God now but why would he listen to me why would he respond when I keep doing things my way instead. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way before in the midst of being in these places of darkness. So you start to ask God to come close, to help you, to have mercy, and then you remember your own sin. And in the midst of connecting with God, it's like these things just move in between you and God. These memories jump up at us and they attempt to block our connection with God. I think it's quite common. In fact, in Psalm 51, there's another psalm um, a while before this one that was written, the writer of that particular psalm expressed the same kind of concept, and this is what he said. said, I know my transgressions. I'm aware of my transgressions, my sin. My sin is always before me. It's this imagery of, like, they're just sort of hovering, my guilt and shame, they're just sort of hovering in front of me, and I'm trying to call out and to see God, but my sins keep getting in the way and keeping me separate from God. Um, from God, blocking my connection with God. If you, Yahweh, check out what he writes in response to this. If you, Yahweh, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If you, Yahweh, kept a record of our sins, who on earth could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. We see this beautiful acknowledgement of the conflict that's going on and the way in which our sin tries to get in front of us and in the way, and then this recognition of the truth of God's forgiveness, that without God's forgiveness, in fact, our sin would still be in the way. It would still prevent us from connecting with God. But God isn't interested in that being true, and so he's forgiven us, he's found a way, he removed the sin, and so it's out of the way, so we can indeed seek and connect um, with God. So in the first section, we cry out to God from the difficulty of our lives, from the pit we find ourselves in. Our sin tries to get in the way, tries to keep us from God, but God removes it, gets it out of the way, deals with our sin so that we can actually interact and have a relationship um, with him. So the next section of Psalm 130, there's a couple of things that I notice immediately. And you see these same sorts of things happening, at least the first one, happening repeatedly as you work through um, the, different, the various psalms. So the first thing I realized as I was reading this is that um, that God got our sins out of the way, but we're still in the pit. So it's not like what we want to think is that I cry out, God hears, he forgives me of my sin, he lifts me up out of the pit, and I go on my merry way. Like, woo, that worked. Good. God, we got a formula down, we know how this works. When I'm in the pit, I pray, God forgives me, he lifts me up, I go on my way, and I'm not in the pit anymore but that is not what we see in this psalm, and it is actually not what we experience in life, and it's not something that we see even in Scripture as we look through and search through the promises that we find in Scripture. That this recipe or this formula that we've created, the way that we long for it to be, that I'll pray and God will lift me out of the pit and we're all good and everything is fine, is not the sort of model that we see or what we see going on in this conversation between the writer and, um, and Yahweh. So that's one thing. The other thing that I notice is um, the, who he's talking to. So in the first part of the psalm, he was very clearly talking to Yahweh. So you see this connection that's happening and the interference of sin and getting that out of the way in this connection. So in this second section, the writer starts to talk about Yahweh. He's no longer talking to Yahweh. He starts to talk about Yahweh. And I'm not, I can't be sure, but it looks to me like he moves from this interaction with God into this internal space where he starts to speak to himself. Reminding himself of what is true. So, check out what, um, what we see here. He says, I wait for Yahweh. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. So, it sounds like this sort of internal conversation that's starting to happen in this um, section. Like he's reminding himself of what he knows to be true. Um, hey, me, I'm still in the pit. Hey, you know, I'm looking around. I'm still in the pit. But God is faithful. I trust. I wait for God. This is what, like, inside, talking, reminding himself of the faithfulness of God and speaking to himself um, in an encouraging way. So the two, uh, there's two words that are used in this section, um, wait and hope. And those two words show up a lot of times through Scripture. We see them um, quite often. They actually contain They're very powerful words, and they contain some elements that we don't usually associate with hope these days uh, and waiting. Very strong elements of anticipation, of expectation, of trust, um, of confidence. So essentially what he's saying is, I'm not just sitting here in the pit. I'm waiting with confident expectation and complete trust in God. That is how I'm waiting. I am here in this pit waiting with confident expectation and complete trust in God that he is going to rescue me eventually. So these days we use the word hope more like wish. So I hope I win the lottery. Um, I hope I get rich. I hope I get a new car for Christmas. So if any of you guys are thinking about getting me something, you know, I'm really (laughs) hoping for it. So we use hope that way, you know. We don't use it like confident expectation. We use it like I wish. I don't really expect it to happen. I'm not likely to win. I've never bought a lottery ticket. I'm probably not going to win the lottery. So I, don't, I can't expect this stuff to happen. I don't really expect it to happen. It's just sort of a wish. Maybe someday these sort of things will happen. But that's not what we see as we're reading through this psalm. That's not what this hope and this waiting is actually like. It's this confident expectation and deep trust in God. But in this psalm, it's far different. And while we're in the midst of um, the pain and the difficulty of our situation, we confidently await God's rescue. And by the way, He's given us His Word. Now, oftentimes we see that word, we see or reference to word and Scripture, and a lot of times we think that yeah, He's talking about the Bible. Well, the Bible didn't even hadn't even been constructed at this point. He's not talking about the Bible. There's far more to God's Word than just the Bible. This is the God of the universe giving you his word. This is our father in heaven giving us a promise that I will rescue you. You can trust me. And we see the writer reminding himself of what's going on in this case. Just as, and this is very fascinating um, imagery here, just as the watchman sits and looks at the horizon, knowing with full confidence that the sun's going to rise, As a watchman waits for the morning, as you sit here as a watchman and you're looking to the horizon, you know the sun's coming up. It may be, you know, clouded over, or what, but the sun's coming up. It comes up every day. There's no doubt. I don't wish for the sun to come up. I know the sun's going to come up. I have confident hope, and that's the kind of hope that we have in God, a confidence even as the sun rises um, in the morning. I wait for Yahweh, my whole being, every part of me, waits for him. And in his word, in his deep, true promise, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning, more than the watchman wait for the sun to rise every morning. So in the final section of Psalm uh, 130, the writer shifts from speaking to God, so we see him interacting and speaking with God, and then move inside and have this sort of conversation, reminding himself of what he knows to be true. And then he moves out to his friends and his people. And so in the next section, we see him start to speak to his, um, to his people. That in the pit of difficulty and despair, that God is with us. That he's not rescued us yet, we're still there. But remember our Lord, remember his promises, remember exactly who Yahweh is. So take a look at the last section of Psalm 130. Israel, my people, my friends, put your hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem us from all of our sins. We do not have an unfaithful God. His love doesn't come and go day to day or moment to moment we often experience love that way in this life but that's not what god's love is like it is unmoving it is faithful love always present always with us his love never fails and our god is not content to leave us trapped in our sin a prisoner of our own mistakes and bad choices but to rescue us from that, our sins in the past, our sins now, our sins in the future. God has dealt with those. He's redeemed. He's bought us out of that life and cleaned us up and brought us into his presence so that we can have a real relationship with him. So uh, a bit ago, Selena read a small portion um, also of a story that we find in Mark um, chapter 13. It's Mark's account of Jesus' life, and the story takes place near um, the end of Jesus' life on earth, not long before he was crucified. And his friends are asking him, it's a very interesting sort of interaction that you see in this Mark chapter 13. His friends start asking him some questions. Mostly those questions are about like Jesus coming and power and the end of the world and all this kind of stuff. And it's some of it's kind of confusing. But the last section, um, Selena read for us. And it's wrestling with this idea or talking about this idea of um, Jesus' return, when God will return to rescue us. And Jesus' response is interesting. It's what his response often is. You ask him a question, he's like, Well, let me tell you a story. So he tells him a story, and the story is about a dude who um, is an owner of property, whatever, and he leaves town, and nobody knows how long he's going to be gone. And he puts a bunch of, wor- bunch of workers in charge of his like, estate or his house or property or whatever. And he leaves. And, uh, and there's this kind of word to these people like, you don't know when he's going to be back, so you need to be ready. You just need to be ready. All the time, you need to be ready. He can come back at any minute. You need to be ready. Doing your job, doing what he's asked you to do, you need to be ready. Um, and we see this happen. I mean, people o- through history have wrestled through the idea of the end of the world and what's it all going to be like and how do we know and when is Jesus coming back and what are the signs so that we can kind of l- anticipate it in advance. Um, and Jesus gets that same kind of questioning here. But the way Jesus responds is fascinating to me. The story that he tells, that he's not interested in us figuring it all out ahead of time. Like, when's the end of the world? Jesus isn't like, well, let me tell you so you can get it figured out in advance and you can be ready. He's like, no, it's not like that. You never know when it's going to be. Because he's not interested in us knowing ahead of time. He's interested in the way we live until that time. The way we live in waiting. The way we live hoping. Trusting. He's concerned about what's going on inside of us while we wait for his arrival, the advent, Jesus returning someday. How do you live today? That's what Jesus is chiefly concerned about. The way you love, the way you trust God, the way you live and serve Him, the way we care about the world around us. That's the stuff that Jesus was constantly talking to us about. I had a friend, um, if you remember the. left behind books that came out years and years ago. So there was a gal that I worked with, um, a tax office I worked at, and the books were kind of a big hit. And she was not a believer at all, like not at all. So she read these books and one day we were chatting and she was like, Larry, I'm so thankful. I finally know how to like watch for it coming. I know the signs when I need to get my act together. And I was like, (laughs) ah! Like, this is exactly the opposite of what Jesus, like, okay, tell me when it's coming, and then I'll clean up and get ready, and I'll be, you know. No, you don't know when he's coming. That's not the point, point. and the point isn't to live in fear for when he comes. The point is to live the way he wants us to live all the time, to love and care and to hope, to put our trust in God, knowing the way the sun rises every morning, that's the confident expectation and the hope that we have in God. So I want to, um, to read just one last time this psalm, And you can follow along if you like, you can close your eyes and just kind of listen and receive Psalm 130 um, as a gift, as a gift of what it means to be present in this world, in all the messiness of this world, but all the joy that we get to receive as well, and the way these things are all mixed up um, with us. So let me read Psalm 130 one last time. Out of the depths I cry to you, Yahweh. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Yahweh, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for Yahweh, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman waits for the sun to rise every morning. More than a watchman waits for the sun to rise every morning I wait. My people, put your hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh is unfailing love, and with, his, with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem us from all our sins.